Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined by a fellow uh, podcaster and someone who's looking at the future of learning and education, Dr. Bernard Bull, the president of Goddard College and the host of EDU Futures podcast. Bernard, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And as I was mentioning right before we got started here, I just binged a bit on your podcast, which is really wonderful. And I think uh, if I'm a Pinot Noir, you know, you're, uh, you're a Cabernet, you know, like, I, I, like <laughs> different, different varietals, but, but I think really interesting stuff going on and, and, and some good overlap. So I'm really excited to, to have you on here to kind of drive on the conversation. I would love to just get an, some initial thinking from you around what's going to emerge out of the transformation we've been experiencing in light of the pandemic, because uh, you know, as someone who can wear multiple hats, looking at the future of higher education as a president of Goddard College, as someone who does a future-facing podcast, and then someone who's in your storied uh, career where you've, you've sort of explored all sorts of dimensions of the educational ecosystem. Any initial thoughts? Specific to COVID or just in general? <laughs> just in general, but then, you know, I imagine COVID may weave its way into at least yeah. the, the next few years. Sure. I have to, I can't, can't go on without that metaphor you used. You used the wine metaphor. I just have to say, yeah. um, you can take the wine. I'd prefer to be a, a craft beer, just something okay. really yeah. thick, milkshake-like beer. So. Yeah, and then I, <laughs> then I could be a, a crisp Pilsner. Yeah, there, there you, you go. go. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I've spent the last 20 years in Wisconsin before moving to Vermont, so there's ah, a real loyalty there. You makes know. <laughs> sense. We'll, do, we'll, we'll talk cheese next time then. Yeah, That's yeah. right. <laughs> so it's, it's an incredible time to be in education. I've said it, and maybe it's almost become cliche, but I really do see this as sort of a Wild West era of education. There's mm -hmm. so much happening, everything from the regulatory front to academic innovation to throw in a little global pandemic, and you really have a party. Right. And, and so it's, it's really been fascinating. I have sort of made a shift in, in my career. I've been a blogger and podcaster and kind of public researcher for mm -hmm. a long time, for a good 20 years. I cut my teeth on educational innovation and media ecology back in the 1990s, right. where um, I was doing research on online learning for K-12 education mm -hmm. uh, back then. And then I got into the, the adverse impact of technology in society. In fact, my very first presentation was on the dangers of technology in education at an mm -hmm. ed tech conference in Chicago with a line of vendors grimacing at me in the wow. back of the room. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've become what I call myself a, a, a Ludvocate. Uh, I have a measure of Luddite and advocate in me and forces me to have a bit of a civil war going on inside at all times. I, I look at things in terms of not just good and bad, but affordances and limitations, things mm -hmm. gained and things lost. And, and I really look at the current landscape in that same way. But I will say that uh, my work led me eventually to get really deeply interested in alternative and experimental models of education. Mm -hmm. I was especially intrigued by education without grades and bells and desks and rows. And mm -hmm. I did a study of over a thousand interviews eventually and, and hundred plus K-12 schools. And then I visited Silicon Valley and higher education went all over the place. And, and, and along the way, I came across a little book that then inspired me called to know for real. And it, 
included the words of a president of a small central Vermont college, Tim Pitkin. It wasn't mm -hmm. written by him, but it was sort of sharing the vision of the launch of this small experimental college called Goddard College. Mm -hmm. And it, the vision was just incredible. I remember reading this book and it was so inspiring that it really set the stage for my work for for almost a decade, a decade and a half, a lot mm -hmm. of my work around inquiry-based learning and project-based learning and, and just different forms and expressions of education that responds to, an, a, cha to a changing world. Yeah, Goddard, it was from its beginning an experimental and experimenting college, never used letter grade. Students mm -hmm. designed their own learning plans, a really radical model focused on this concept that a democracy depends upon people who can think for themselves. So voice mm -hmm. choice, ownership, and agency were central. Yeah. So I'm kind of jumping ahead. I'm just giving you a little context here. But I, you know, I was so moved by that. It led me to, I, I did speaking around the country, other parts of the world. I was in Vietnam and Hong Kong and Canada and um, Australia and other places. I had a chance to share with international schools. And, and of course, I would pick up and learn new things as I went along. And then I was doing a sabbatical a few years ago at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, working on one of my one of my books at the time was on self-directed learning, mm -hmm. and um, saw an email come through about this college that had inspired me for so many years, Goddard, looking for a president, and yeah. applied, and I found out quickly that Goddard was actually on the brink of closure. It had mm -hmm. been given a show cause notice from the regional accreditors, which was worse than probation. It's essentially saying you're going to lose accreditation unless you give evidence otherwise. And I was really inspired by that and wanted to be part of the community. I just believe that it plays such an important role in offering a compelling alternative to the sort of industrial dominant structures of, of K-12 and higher ed, yeah, uh, even though yeah. there's some beautiful alternatives. So I stepped into it and that's what I've been doing for the last 18 months is is trying to work with the community there to uh, reimagine ourselves in some ways, but keep our legacy around learner-driven education central. We did have, you know, financial issues that were quite significant. We're working mm -hmm. through, we're still doing fundraising, but we've built a viable financial model. I believe we're really close um, in the middle of a, a major fundraising campaign to raise $4 million in the next 60 days or less right. and uh, doing some really interesting work. And then all of that's happening. And lo and behold, uh, a global pandemic emerges. Right, right, right. So nothing like an academic turnaround with a little pandemic thrown into it. And, uh, and so that has definitely changed the nature of fundraising. And we've had to make some, some changes. In fact, we made an early decision to go virtual for the fall, but that's been uh, a little bit complicated because the U.S. Department of Ed at the time had released a message noting it was okay for us to do that, for colleges to do that. But then later they released another document that said that that permission expired in June. So mm -hmm. we're still waiting um, yeah. to see. I'm hoping to find out any day what will happen that will have mm -hmm. a bit, big impact on how we respond. And, and it really is, uh, I think you and I, we touched base before, and I was sharing that I believe that leadership in education and anywhere I buy into Annie Duke's concept, which is that leadership is more like poker than chess, because chess, if you play every move perfectly, you, you're likely to win. Right. And in poker, you have to play your hand, and you can play your hand perfectly and still lose. Right. And not that education is just a game. I mean, games can be real and serious, yeah. but, but it's definitely that way. And I'm doing a lot of scenario planning, a lot of thinking about the future of education. In mm -hmm. fact, this morning, and it wasn't in, in anticipation for this interview, but I was doing playing around. 
and I started making a list of 30 very speculative predictions for education mm. in a post-COVID context. Wow. And I'm really putting myself out there. So these are predictions, things that I think uh, will happen within 365 days from today. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, I'd, we'd love to get a, get a few of them in there. Uh, w- w- <laughs> would be great. And uh, full disclosure, as an undergraduate, I went to New College in Florida, which is a kindred spirit, and there was took some inspiration from Goddard. So I'm a I'm a big believer in being more experimental and intentional about how you design the promise of higher education. And it's it's inspirational that there are organizations like Goddard and folks like yourself who are trying to continue to to innovate. In some ways, you know, it does feel as though come March of 2020, if you weren't innovating before then you're innovating now. So any thoughts on uh, sort of the scenario-based orientation and the fact that in some ways you have had an experimental mindset and openness to flexible mindset about how to deliver solutions and design, design learning communities. Any thoughts on how that, you know, your background kind of set you up for success or at least advice for others who are trying to think about, you know, scenario-based conceptions of what's coming down the pike? Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of scenario planning. And there are so many resources people can check out. But in scenario planning, you get to know yourself and you sort of study your context and identify contest tech specific traits, like our financial situation and Mm -hmm. other kinds of things, the profile of our students. And then from there, you you go into this phase of, of looking at what are the external forces, many of which I have no control over, or limited control over that I need to be thinking about. And then based upon those, really narrowing it down to what are the two most significant external forces likely to impact us right now. Mm-hmm. And then you can develop this sort of grid, right? And, yeah. do, and from that grid, you can tell four stories mm-hmm. based upon it. For example, for us at Goddard, as we were thinking about the fall, we thought, okay, we don't know if we're going to be able to do online or in person. And we're all low residency, just for those who are listening. So our students only come for 10 days at a time a semester. Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm. not like the traditional residential college. But we thought, okay, we're going to be able to do those residencies in the fall because our first ones start in July. July already, early July, right? or not. So, so one of the forces that we have some control over, but we, we didn't know is online versus, versus in person for mm-hmm. that residency. Mm-hmm. And the other force was simply COVID. Is it going to be a high risk or is it going to be a diminished risk? And from right. that, we were able to develop these four stories. You have online with high risk, online with low risk, in person with high risk, in person with low risk. And you begin yeah. to kind of map out these stories, these scenarios of mm-hmm. what would work for your context. And it's pretty powerful. And when you do it with a group of people in your organization, it doesn't tell you what to do, but it gives you perspective and insight mm-hmm. that you might have missed. It, it sort of reveals some of those, like a blind spot, you know, when you're driving, it, yep. it begins to reveal some of that. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely encourage people to be thinking, thinking in those terms more broadly. In fact, I just started on Tuesday, I have a group of 17 schools from, I think, um, collectively, they're going to be from three countries, Vietnam, Canada, the US, and then I think we have 12 or 13 states represented, K-12 schools. Mm -hmm. And we're going through a process of stage one, let's look at the times and look at, at what's happening and identify a central dilemma for our school, whether it's academic or financial or whatever else it might be. Mm -hmm. And then in phase two, we're going to 
profile a variety of different academic models for digital futures uh, mm -hmm. for schools. And then phase three, every school is going to be devising their own, uh, their own learning plan or their mm -hmm. own uh, digital futures plan for their school, yep. to sort of supplement their strategic plan. I think what's interesting is in this current response to COVID, so many K-12 schools and higher ed had to jump online instantly. And yes. most people didn't know anything about the research, didn't realize there are five decades of research on distance learning. Yep. We know so much. We may even know more about distance learning than in-person learning because mm -hmm. every action is documented. And, and so people just did their best. That's why so many people jumped on Zoom. They, yep. they replicated the in-person classroom with video conferencing, which is mm -hmm. essentially what happens with most, most innovations. People try to use the innovation initially just to replicate. Yes. Their, the metaphors that are in their mind, the classroom. Mm -hmm. yep. and, and I think the real challenge and opportunity now for school leaders on whatever level is now that there's a little bit of breathing room or when there is a little breathing room to really step back and say, okay, what do we take from this? What are the things that amid this COVID response, what are the weaknesses and limitations that were really evident and revealed for us through this challenge? Right, right. And maybe it's our relationship with families. Maybe, mm -hmm. it's, uh, maybe it's some of the divisiveness and the, the clashing educational philosophies internally. You know, it could right. be all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And then the other is, what are the surprises? What are the things that we began to surface and, and said, wow, we never even thought about this before. Right, right. But to not just base their future on that because it's still limited to their sphere of influence. So the, the next part is really take the next few months and expand your sense of possibility. There are, I made a list somewhere of 42 different possible academic models for a K-12 school going mm -hmm. into the future. Wow. Everything from trying to get back to exactly how we did things before to mm -hmm. going fully online to yeah. everything in between. It, you, you've got some. You've got some good lists. I, I, I kind of want to. <laughs> I want to get some big cocktail napkins and spend a little time drinking some craft beer with you sometime and just see what happens. What I really like about the direction you're taking, kidding aside, is the idea of possible futures plural. As simple a concept as that might be, there's so much overfitting to the predominant mental model that's out yeah. there, the pr predominant narrative, the predominant story. And, you know, your, your podcast is very much about, you know, you quote R. Buckminster, a.k.a. Bucky F Fuller, in your uh, open. And, you know, he was very much talking about reinventing the model, reimagining, rather than fighting against the predominant model, instead invent a new one. Can you expand on that a little bit? It seems like the time is right for that mindset, and I'm not sure everyone is there. Right. The Yeah, the Bucky Fuller quote, I don't have it word for word, but just as you said, it's this notion that many times we see some kind of injustice or something that doesn't align with our beliefs and values in education, and we devote all of our energy to fighting against it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a the dragon slayer mindset, which mm -hmm. I get into, and I, yeah. I think there's a time and a place for that. That's important. Mm -hmm. But then there's also another alternative, which is, which is the, the, what Bucky Fuller was alluding to, which is one of the ways to fight against the present reality and the injustices or the things that don't amplify the beliefs and values you think are most important is just to create an alternative that's so compelling mm -hmm. that people just begin to move away from the existing reality to something different. Mm -hmm. And obviously there are different innovation frameworks like the disruptive innovation concept that Christensen and Michael yep. Horn and others have talked about. And mm -hmm. uh, 
you could look at the diffusion of innovation, Everett Rogers, more classic yeah. kind of uh, Thomas. Thing. Go back to Thomas Kuhn, right? The, the, <laughs> That's the structure right. of scientific rev revolutions. Let's you paradigm know, shifts. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there are a few ways that people can can endeavor <laughs> on this journey. One is we can travel widely. And I mean that figuratively and literally, maybe not mm -hmm. in these days, travel yeah. widely, but travel widely in the sense that it's really hard to imagine possibilities if you've never seen them or experienced them. Mm -hmm. For example, when I, I was first advocating for schools to consider the possibility of project-based learning, mm -hmm. so often people would hear the story of project-based learning and then they'd say well that would never happen in my school with my students with mm -hmm. my teachers with our administrators well, you know with something our parents and and so the only way i found to really get through that was to say let's go spend some time either virtually or in person and give them an experience where they either they get to experience it themselves or they get to see it firsthand mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they begin to see oh wait a second they didn't, they didn't create this by just putting it on top of what we do normally. Mm -hmm. They created something new. Mm -hmm. I always say that the most innovative schools create what I call unavoidable, undeniable school shaping concepts. Mm -hmm. Meaning that it's a, like if you're a project-based school, you're all in on it. And yeah. you can't be a teacher in that school and not be an advocate of project-based learning. And people say, well, why not? You can close your door and do your own thing. And my response is, no, you can't because they've gotten rid of doors. I mean, right, right. in some of these places, they've literally changed the architecture sometimes mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. to embody. So to give people a sense of, of really just completely stepping out of their existing paradigm, right? Mm -hmm, the, as you mm -hmm. mentioned before, and, and seeing it firsthand, that's, that's definitely one possibility. And I think for most in education, that's probably the most likely path forward for those who are going to create something new. Mm -hmm. Most innovation is really, right, it's the art of hiding your sources, creativity. So you get lots of sources and then you put it in a blender and you come up with something that's unique for your context. Yep. Um, then there is the rare innovator and change agent who doesn't necessarily just look at what others are doing, but they mm -hmm. start with a set of, of values that they really want to amplify. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's, I really want people to graduate who have a deep sense of agency and an understanding of both individual and collective action. Like maybe mm -hmm. that's what their value is. Right. And from that, they really just find a way to throw off everything mm -hmm. and they engage in different creative exercises to say, okay, if there were no, if there were no limits, mm -hmm. what kind of learning community we, would we create? It right. was centered around this one core value. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really powerful activity. And even if some say, well, wait a second, all the regulations, all the rules, I could never do that. The exercise itself is really powerful because then once you get that grand picture, even if you can't make that happen, you can pare it back a little bit and say, yes. okay, well, what if I take it back a step mm -hmm. or two steps or three steps until we get something that maybe can work within the existing structure enough to move forward for the present? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, and it reminds me of a, a couple of concepts. On the one hand, it's uh, design thinking, you know, yeah. and thinking of the system. And then the other, it's um, just understanding the fundamental power of culture. You know, so if you could create a culture that encourages diverse perspectives and then is encouraged to brainstorm about possible solutions, 
then it just becomes a, a problem of idea selection and resourcing. But I think frequently when you don't allow for that openness around the thinking, it creates a stifling of potential innovation within an organization or within a culture. As someone who's really come at this problem from a bunch of different angles and talked to different experts and leaders in, in many different aspects of education, do you think this pandemic that we're in is a watershed moment? Do you think that coming out of this will never quite go back to where we were before or or is it too up in the air or is that just one of possible futures for us to think about i'd love to get your perspective on that i do think that there's no going back but i don't know whether everyone will see that or experience that over the next couple of years that's Mm -hmm. the part that's uncertain so Mm -hmm. for example when people went through the great depression that was in multiple years but uh, it transformed more than a generation. It transformed the, the, the fabric of, of this nation and, and other places. And there are influences that are present even today, even if not everyone recognizes that the influence started back with the Great Depression. Yep. But one example might be the way in which it changed the, the buying habits and people's relationship with money and the like, um, and how you, you know people can still hear stories of, of grandparents or others and how frugal they were. And right. I always think the irony that Mr. Potato Head was created you know, right post, post uh, Great Depression, and it was literally branded as any... Any food can make a funny-faced man. Well, just as they're teaching people to be frugal with their food, they come out with a toy, you know, to play with it, which didn't work out well. They actually had to create a fake potato to, yeah. to expand market share. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, the Great Depression, it, it, had, it had this impact. I don't know. Certainly people realized that at the time. But if you went back, if you go maybe 10 years after the Great Depression, you ask people, so... How did it change your life? Some people might have said, well, things generally are getting back to normal. Mm-hmm. Like some might have seen it that way. But when we look at it on the macro level, it absolutely wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> that's not accurate, right? right there's a right. lot of change. Yeah. So I think that's probably the same thing with this. And there's obviously a social and psychological component to what people are experiencing our relationship with travel and with mm-hmm. space, mm-hmm. our understanding of risk and, and health is yeah. going to be shifted and changed. Mm-hmm. And even in subtle, even sort of subconscious ways, it's going to influence our behaviors, some people's behaviors more than others. And even for those who, are, who become radical risk takers, it might be influencing them as reacting in the opposite direction. Right. Um, so I think there's, there's no question in my mind that, that there's no going back, that, right. that we're moving into a new future, the, a new normal, you know, right. different possibilities. And where that goes is, is uh, definitely up in the air. I did mention yeah. I, I played around with some pro- projections. Yeah, I'd love to hear a few and, if, you want, if you want to, you yeah. know. And, and some of them seem really subtle at first. Mm-hmm. But, for example, the notion of homeschooling, mm-hmm about three, three to 4%, less than 4%, closer to 3% of um, school-age children homeschool mm-hmm. in the United States today. Yep. Well, Jerry Mintz of the Alternative Education Research Organization and a Goddard alum, he, he, he once said, you know, overnight, 
homeschooling went from 3% to 99%. Well, right. some may challenge that and say that it really wasn't, it was schooling from home, but it sure. wasn't homeschooling. Right. Regardless, it was a shift. Mm-hmm. And, and I do suspect, for example, that there are families who've experienced this and they like it. Yeah. They really resonate with it. Mm-hmm. And so I think we could see over the next year a doubling of homeschooling. So go mm-hmm. from 3% to 6% or something like that. I, I like, by the way, I like these are measurable. And for return engagement, you know, we could go, go back to the, the transcript and, and hold you accountable. That's right. So, so That's good, right. Job, good job by you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, I, that, and I'm doing it because I do a lot of forecasting. In fact, I teach a doctoral course on uh, futures and forecasting. And I, I approach forecasting in a couple of ways. One is I do really careful study over days, weeks, and months. I used to work with different clients and, mm-hmm. and help them prepare for future changes, whether they're schools or, or different nonprofits or foundations. And in that work, I, I take really, really seriously if they're asking me to kind of step up there and make some projections for them. Mm-hmm. But there's another part of forecasting that I believe is rightfully speculative, you know, one of the people I interviewed, one of my first interviews, I think it might have been my first one released was David Staley, mm-hmm. who wrote a book on alternative universities. And it's, it's essentially a collection of speculations of possible futures for universities. Mm-hmm. And that kind of exercise is, is, is really, really powerful. And so I would say that even if it's not likely to happen as he told the story, it gets us imagining a new possibility. So yeah. I would say my projections here, even though they're numeric, they're speculative. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I like that one. I agree. Uh, agree wholeheartedly. It also it's somewhat definitional too. Like to your point, what is homeschooling, and what kind of new language, new new categories? Even the way people are talking about hybrid or blends or flex, like it does feel like there's some something new and emergent that will come out of this in terms of the language we use. Yeah. But I'd, I'd love to get, uh, you know, maybe another uh, another morsel or two out of you since since, since you've said there are 30. You, know, yes, you got plenty, well, you got plenty to impart. Me. <laughs> awesome, so, awesome. I'll jump around from K-12 to higher ed to yeah. professional ed yeah. to some other things. So um, I'm one that's not education-oriented, but it will have an impact on how people learn is mm. telecommuting. So yeah. um, I wrote, long-term remote working and telecommuting will increase by 10%. Mm-hmm. compared to the numbers reported just prior to the spread of COVID in the U.S. Right. Um, and we're already seeing that one. That's not much of a, of a risk, although 10% yeah. is significant. Well, that's, that's the part where it's almost like, uh, you know, uh, name that tune or the price is right. You know, now I can say, now I'm going to say it's going to go 15%, you know, like right. without going over, you know. So anyway. I always put a 10% plus, you know. I, I, I put <laughs> sure. But when I mean, we're already hearing places, you know, Facebook and Twitter and other mm-hmm. places like that are saying, hey, we don't need to come back or right. we can be flexible or and, and I think we're going to see more of that, especially in sectors that don't ultimately depend upon people being in person. And if if this grand experiment in remote working pans out and the research for quite a while has shown that in many cases, productivity increases with yes. remote working anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that, that's one that has more educational implications than most have thought about mm-hmm. um, it. And I'll flip over one of the others that I put together that is related to professional development and sort of outside. I have two of them. So one is more on the 
the younger population side, mm-hmm. but this one is may sound like a stretch to some, but 20% of non-school education providers, and I'm thinking of things like dance schools, martial mm-hmm. arts schools, tutoring services, yep. uh, fitness training and education. Mm-hmm. So 20% of non-school education providers that previously provided all services in person mm-hmm. will include fee-based remote learning Yep. as a sizable part of their, their financial portfolio. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I like them all that, you yep. know, cause that they, and they're kind of interrelated too. If you start imagining what this future world might look like, and it's not too dissimilar from the world we're living in now where there's more, if there's more telecommuting, you know, more working from home, it opens up more potential for homeschooling or some flavor of exactly of homeschooling, you know, mm-hmm. and then, it's sort of, in some ways, it makes me think back to my, my childhood when I was, you know, fascinated by role-playing games and, you know, how that was, you know, A, an imaginative exercise to begin with, but then also as you get into the design of those games and the design of those scenarios, that level of thought starts to get to where, like, a, a new president of Goddard College needs to be where you're trying to think through, you almost have to imagine the possibilities so that when the reality occurs, it's not going to be an exact match, but you've at least sort of warmed up your flexibility of frameworks so that you could say, oh, I'm going to borrow from these things and kind of cobble together right. a vision for where we're going to go. Yeah. And, and obviously, as you, as you acknowledge, when I look at these patterns, they're feeding each other. Mm-hmm. So that they, they amplify one another in some in some way. I, mm-hmm. I'll share one other that kind of goes a little different direction for the adult crowd with professional education. I've done work with the Academy of General Dentistry mm-hmm. and I've done a little work with some professional accountants over the years mm-hmm. who are doing ongoing continuing ed. And so this one is 75% of professional associations. This is my biggest number, actually, 75% of okay. professional associations that historically depended upon in-person conferences for mm-hmm. more than a fourth of their annual revenue mm-hmm. <laughs> will significantly expand their offering to fee-based online programming, many of which will make online the focus and make smaller national and regional in-person events uh, a supplement. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a... I agree, because I think what's interesting is the, you know, I'd love to disagree because it would make for a slightly more interesting (laughs) conversation, but like, it does feel like the world's evolving towards a simulcast model where there may be a physical location, but you can't expect everyone to be there anymore. And, And then as that begins to emerge, then it starts to getting back to the idea of an intentional design for your community. You know, those times when it, it, it really makes sense to be co-located. And this also assumes we have a vaccine and we'll start feeling more confident about public health, which I think the challenge there is this is a long time horizon to be under that psychological stress. So that's why I think these changes are really gonna like dig in in ways that it'll be tough to, to sort of unravel. But it does feel like the idea of physical co-location which was very central to many of the mental models that emerged even out of the 19th century uh, and earlier, is now almost forced to be the the second part of the conversation where, you know, if you wanna be inclusive, if you wanna reach the broadest population, if you wanna be most resilient in light of public health concerns, 
making the, 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 the remote experience, the online experience, I still think the language needs to be better because I think distance learning feels less engaged, less emotionally connected than I, I think really good e-learning is. But it does feel like we're going to enter this phase where thoughtful design about how it feels to be a participant from her own home who still achieves a lot of the the, the values, that gets a sense of the values, gets a sense of the, the community. A lot of the things, almost the more ineffable parts about what the higher ed experience is about, try to translate that into an, a, a sort of a blended model, I think will be really intriguing. And then it sounds as though Goddard has done that to a certain extent, right? So you have this intensive yeah. co-located. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think that might be an interesting uh, dimension. So at Goddard, the way that the dominant educational model right now is that learners, uh, we have a variety of programs with one of the top 10 MFA in writing programs in the nation for low residency and you know, some incredible authors. And, uh, and by the way, I mean, uh, to me, you can look at numbers and things like that for schools and graduation rates and jobs and things. But I, I love just looking at lists of alumni. And when you look at alumni and what they have created that never existed in the world from a tiny school in central Vermont, it's, mm -hmm. it, pretty, it, it amazes me to mm -hmm. see what happens when you give people agency mm -hmm. and or you help them see the agency they have. So what happens is students across different programs, we have undergraduate, graduate, different programs, individualized and undergrad and grad, so they can kind of make their own curriculum. Mm -hmm. So they, they apply, they get accepted. They show up for a 10-day in-person residency, either on the West Coast or in Vermont, typically. Mm -hmm. Although this round, we're planning on doing that virtually, but in real time. And during that time, it's like a intense conference from like seven in the morning until midnight almost mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with not just academic kinds of exercises, but there's like, op there are open mic nights. Mm -hmm. There are poetry readings. There are learner organized events. There are faculty leading workshops on different research strategies and practices. And, and in, in the beginning of the, the week, they there's a graduation and every student is valedictorian of their own curriculum. Every student has a chance at the mic during graduation and they nice. speak, and people speak about them and they speak about their work and, and passions. Mm -hmm. It's so moving. It's, it's night and day different from the, the um, sort of factory of walking yeah. up and getting a diploma. Right. And, and so students all have to present their work in, before they graduate too. So you get to see these incredible projects. Mm -hmm. they, so the, the students leave, we do this incredible conference-like experience for the upcoming days, get, people get to know each other, and they get assigned an advisor. In many of our programs, one student works with one faculty member for all credits, for 12 or 15 credits. In other mm -hmm. programs, they do get multiple faculty members, but they meet with their advisor, they get to know them, and then the students devise a, a learning plan, a study plan for themselves. They decide what they're going to read or study. They decide their goals to a large extent. They have a lot of flexibility and they get feedback from their advisor, their mentor, uh, and then they, they leave campus. Mm -hmm. And for the rest of the semester, they're working on that and they're touching base with them. We don't use a learning management system, but we, I mean, some use Google Classroom a little bit, but mm -hmm. we use uh, video conferencing, telephone. Yep. If they mm -hmm. live near each other, they'll connect in person. They do all this work. They submit packets of work three to five times a, a semester, and they get really detailed, rich narrative feedback most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, no grades, because it's all about learning versus earning. Yeah. And, and then they come back uh, the next semester and they do it all over again. Yeah. Um, so it's, pretty, it's a pretty uh, interesting, really deep learning that happens.
And it's, in essence, it is a blend of in-person and remote already, right? If it is 10 days, the remainder of the the semester is distance. And in some ways that makes the, the planning exercise to pivot, you know, then it's more, obviously the, you know, you were intentional or Goddard is intentional about the, that sort of co-located when everyone's in the same place, right? There is, there's some ritual and ceremony and it's important and it's, it's a, it's a really life-changing intense period, but then the rest is individualized. It makes the, the, the new design more focused on, okay, how do we take that, that 10 day experience and move that online? But then the rest of your semester was already sort of uh, pandemic proof. Uh, That's right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think in many ways, of course, as pandemic proof as it can be when people are losing jobs and family members ill and, you know, those kinds of things. But because obviously people, some found this, this, these last months to be invigorating and they dove in and they're writing a novel in a semester and others are attending to they have their children in their yeah. home or elderly loved ones, some mm-hmm. who have passed away and they right. can't even see them. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, there's, there's a real mix there, but, but definitely in some ways we had a head start mm-hmm. on, on other schools and for the, not for other than the new students, many had a, had the ritual. They had a right. sense of how this worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, it's uh, definitely a, a promising model. By the way, Goddard's low residency was the first low residency program in the nation. It, it was created by Evelyn Bates, uh, assistant. I think she was assistant to the president. I actually just reread her thesis from the University of Chicago, where she proposed this model to be done at, at Goddard. She was working at Goddard and did her graduate studies at University of Chicago and brought it back. And it became the first low residency model in the nation. And And now, I mean, how many hundreds do we have in higher education. And can, um, can you clarify uh, for folks who may not know what, what qualifies as low residency? Yeah, so low residency is this notion of, of coming to campus for short intensive periods and doing the remainder of your learning remotely. So it can be either a concentrated one to however many weeks, once a year, once a semester. Yeah. Another low residency derivation would be the weekend residency where mm-hmm you come for uh, a day or two a month or a weekend and then you do the rest remotely that's interesting yeah it does remind me also you know i'm in uh, i'm in new york city and in essence uh, k12 is going to need to go low residency in a lot of places now too in terms of you know being in some days split cohorts so that you can adopt the social distancing in these sort of denser school environments that's why i do think you know being having the experience of being experimental and flexible in your understanding of what higher education is, understanding that, you know, delivering on the mission and the promise, there's many different tactics kit that can achieve those, those things. I think does, that's the type of mindset that everyone needs now. Like I'd like to say, like I've, I've been 20 years of my career, I've been an ad hoc instructional designer. And now I feel like, the rest of the world has caught up to me because like it's going to be all instructional design all the time. And it's going to be against sort of a, a very dynamic set of environmental variables that are probably going to be constantly changing. This has been an amazing conversation, Bernard. Really appreciate uh, your time. 
as we're heading towards the close, you know, you know, in the next, say, five, 10 minutes, I'd love to see how you can start to knit some of your 30 things, 30 predictions together into maybe a little more of a, a narrative or maybe a few narratives around what the future might, might look like. If we're telling the story, let's take your, take your 365 days from now. We're looking, we're looking at where the world might be. Do you have a few uh, scenarios that you think might be useful to think about? Sure. I think, I think we can envision um, a context in a world where notions and relationship with place will be wildly different, mm-hmm. where the way in which people think about use of their home space will be, will be different, mm-hmm. that there's this really deeply human yearning for relationship and connection mm-hmm. that, that maintains, that exists, persists, and some will seek that out by trying to replicate pre-COVID times and contexts, and others will be creating new models and modalities of that. Mm-hmm. There's also a taste of a kind of freedom and autonomy that's been experienced for some amid COVID, mm-hmm. and that's going to express itself in new ways educationally as well. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, definitely we're going to we, we've talked about the idea of online learning and blended learning. Mm-hmm. And, and we are going to be seeing in 365 days, a far more blended living mm-hmm. than just blended learning. Uh, mm-hmm. So blended between digital experiences and in-person experiences and not just going online for, you know, email and, and work related tasks and some YouTube videos and your favorite, you know, entertainment source, mm-hmm. but one that, that will have a much more deepened nuanced sense of for example internships and experiential learning uh, are valuable and we think of apprenticeship models and i would expect that within a year we'll see new experiments of digital and virtual apprenticeships Mm -hmm. that maintain deep relationship and personalized learning but what about an apprentice for future uh, apprenticeships for podcasters and for educators and for um, uh, people working in media and marketing that lends itself toward uh, apprenticeships. We already seen a lot of that. I also think that alongside this future, we are going to see growth and expansion of kind of gig economy and solopreneurs. You mentioned your work in instructional design. I do think we're going to see increased investment in outsourced health and consulting for K-12 and higher education. I actually have those in my predictions of percentage increases on K-12 and higher ed for Uh uh, uses of of, of the like. And obviously a lot of those investments are going to be around professional development, academic innovation, IT, fundraising, Mm -hmm. enrollment, (laughs) you know, things like that. So with all of that is also the possibility though, of new inequities that will become evident to us. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the predictions I didn't, I didn't talk about, but the literature and the research around the digital divide goes back a, a long time, but it's going to be reinvented over the next year. People have discovered new inequities yeah. uh, and they're experiencing for the first time. And you know the way that we talk and think about diversity, equity, and inclusion has just drastically changed even in the last five to 10 years. Yes. So we're gonna have to see that whole conversation of the digital divide revisited around lenses of languages like anti-racism and white mm-hmm. privilege and white supremacy and right. vocabulary that really wasn't being used to talk about such matters as much right. Right. Uh, in many circles a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so I think it's it's going to be a wild ride. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> strap, yeah. Stri- get get your seatbelts, you know, like strap strap in. And but uh, I I keep coming back. So previously, um, my favorite uh, quote, a quote on my signature was William Gibson. You know, the future is here now. It's just not very evenly distributed. But I just updated it to the Alan Alan Kay quote: "The best way to predict the future is to invent it." And it feels like that's extremely, I like to say zeitgeisty. So there, I did it. That seems very of this time in that, you know, so many folks are shook that if you're not shook, it's almost your responsibility to lean. If you're in the educational space, if you care about learning, whole nother thing to talk about is the distinction between learning and education, where that does seem like a broader awakening. I know I, I, I learned it by listening uh, to you among others, but, but, but yeah, it's just a, a fascinating time. And I, I think it's a time where like, inspirational leadership as cheesy as that may sound like like actually being optimistic and leaning in and showing up when things are hard so so that's why you know it is a credit to you to take on the the presidentship to do, to lead a turnaround and then to have the the sort of um, fire in the belly and 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 optimism around being able to sort of navigate these complex times any concluding thoughts on on really like the leadership challenges that you're facing or that we're all facing uh, these days yeah, I mean, if if you and I are to, were to talk in three months, six months, 12 months, I don't know what the future is going to be for the specific context that I'm in. We may succeed, we may fail. There's there's risk and uncertainty. The future uh, doesn't exist from, you know, from our vantage point. And so I do love that that adjustment to your, your quote. I think that's a beautiful one. I know some attribute it to Abraham Lincoln and other that. people too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and... I think it's it's a beautiful thing. I had a conversation with a friend a number of years ago, and she and I would have these really great kind of bantering conversations, friendly debates, and just to challenge each other to think differently. Mm-hmm. And and one time she said to me, "Yeah, that's great. Bernard would have us believe that unicorns exist." And and I had this inspiration, so I went over to one of my favorite websites for hiring contracted graphic designers, and I posted an idea. And I had a, a guy actually who does a lot of the has done a lot of the graphic designs for Stephen King novels, yeah. and he, he a lot of the the people do this kind of gig thing just to stay sharp in between sure. projects, you know. Yeah. And he took me up on it, and it's uh, it's like a, a picture of these two scientists in their coats in a lab. And it's like acne DNA or something like that, or acne genetics lab. And there's a guy who has in a glass jar, he has a a living unicorn and he points at it and says, see, I told you that unicorns could exist. So as opposed to this notion that, okay, they don't exist, end of story, let's move on. Mm. There is an opportunity. Of course, there's a reality that we kind of have to align with. So we're not just crashing into walls, but there also are ways to create doors in walls. It Mm -hmm. takes some work and some effort and some deconstructing and reconstructing. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a real opportunity for us to lean into that and try to co-create something that's better, more hopeful, more humane, and more inspiring than what we have now. Wonderful words from a a really visionary thinker. Recommend folks uh, listen to EDU Futures, which is Dr. Bernard Bull's uh, podcast. Uh, also, if you want to learn more about, uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Goddard College, uh, where do you go? Yeah, you can just go to goddard.edu. And I hope you don't mind. I have to put the plug in as a president in the middle of a fundraising campaign. <laughs> you can also go to goddard.edu 
forward slash together, the number four Goddard. And there's a place where you can support if you wanted to. Yeah, it, it is that time where the, the dollars are tight. So it's important to think about that. And it's, it's great, to, great to support something if you do believe in the, the mission. Generally, my take has been just like any organization, a university with a mission who's intentional about how it's charting its path has so much of a better prognosis than the universities that don't. So I do feel like you're in a, you're in a good position in that you kind of know where you are, you know who you are, you know where you want to go in these crazy times. Dr. Bernard Bull, thanks very much for joining. I appreciate your contribution. And thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back again soon on Trending in Education.